Our gospel lesson for today serves as the basis for both our children's devotion and our sermon. It comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 9. As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. And he sent messengers on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. When the disciples, James and John, saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to destroy them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them. Then he and his disciples went to another village. As they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, Foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He said to another man, Follow me. But he replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, Let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord. But first, let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, No one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. Good morning. How are you guys today? Do you guys know what this is called? What's it called? An hourglass, except this one doesn't take an hour. Right? This is a little one. This is just a couple minutes. This is from a game we have at home. Honestly, I didn't even time it to see exactly how long it takes for the sand to move from the top to the bottom, but it's not an hour. You'd have to get a much bigger one for it to be truly an hourglass. But you're right, this is called an hourglass. Now, what's happening? Is the sand from the top emptying, or is the sand in the bottom, the little part in the bottom, filling up? Both. Both. Right? Both are happening. The top is losing sand and the bottom is filling up. Now, sometimes when we look at our life, we might think, I have less and less days left to live. So the sand is running out. But I suppose we could also think that our glass of life is filling up. It just kind of depends on how you look at it. In the very first line of our sermon text from the Gospel of Luke, we hear these words, as the time approached for him, Jesus, to be taken up to heaven. Literally, Luke used a word that that means filling up to the brim and about to overflow. So picture you have a glass of water and you're at the sink and you're filling it up, filling it up. It's almost full. You turn around to talk to your brother, your sister, your mom or dad, and you forget the water's on and all of a sudden, what's happening? It's so full, it's overflowing. That's the word that's used. He says, Jesus' days were filling up to the point of almost overflowing. And when it was full, then it was gonna be time for him to ascend into heaven. It's an interesting picture. Today we're going to talk about what it looks like for us to to view Jesus' life filling up, almost full, time to go do the work of saving humans from their sin. And we're going to talk about what it looks like for you and me 
to look at our lives and say, okay, our lives are filling up. We're almost full, almost time to go to heaven to be with Jesus. What does the rest of our life here on earth look like? Today we're going to see our Savior Jesus very committed to one thing, saving you and me. As his glass is filling up, it's time to do the work of saving sinners like you and me. We see that he does that as he dies on the cross for our sins and as he rises from the dead to show us that we will be with him forever, not dead, but alive. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, today we're asking you to help us look at life a little differently. We're asking you to help us understand how you looked at your own life. And as we do, we ask that you would help us to look at our lives differently. Help us to apply the good news of how you lived your life committed to save us, that we might apply that in our lives, committed to follow you however many days we have left. We ask you to help us, dear Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. Let's pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So I'm, I'm guessing that most of you, if not all of you, are very familiar with the Old Testament account of Jericho. God told his army as they went into the promised land that they were going to overcome the the great walls of the city of Jericho in a strange way. They were going to march around it once a day for six days, and on the seventh day, march around it seven times. They were going to yell, the priests were going to blow some ram's horns, and the walls were just going to fall down. Remember that one? What you might not remember is what happens right before that. Joshua, the new leader of the Lord's people, now that Moses has been called home to heaven, Joshua's out walking around one day, and he sees a man standing with his sword drawn, a military man, ready for battle. And Joshua looks at him and he says, are you for us, or are you for our enemies? And the man replies, neither. Neither. Not for you, not against you, neither. But as the commander of the armies of the Lord, I have come. Joshua is staring at the embodiment of Jesus before he became a man before Christmas, the second person of the Trinity. There he stands before Joshua. And Joshua wants to know, are you for me or against me? And he says, neither. This is an interesting thought to get us started today. Because so often in life, as we progress, we, we ask questions like this to our God, even if we don't really realize that we are. When we're young, it's, should I date this person or should I not date this person? What do you think, Lord? Are you for it or are you against it? 
And then maybe a month later, should I keep dating this person or should I stop dating this person? What do you think, Lord? Are you for this relationship or against it? Lord, what, what about this plan I have after high school? Are you for it or are you against it? Lord, how, how about this, this potential spouse? Are you for this marriage or are you against it? How about this career choice, Lord? Are you for me or are you against me? Lord, this marriage is getting hard. Should I keep going or not? Are you for it or are you against it? Thinking about a career change, Lord. Selling the house, buying a new one. What do you think? You for it? You against it? Lord, medical procedure. Not quite sure. It's recommended, but not required. You for it? You against it? End of life. Lord, what do I do? Seems like machines are keeping my loved one alive. Is this good? Is this bad? Lord, are you for? Are you against? What should I do, Lord? His answer is always the same to us. Neither. He's coming to fight a different battle. The little skirmishes that we face in this life, the fork in the road. God is not a God who is in heaven saying, well, He better make the right choice this time. As his followers, we can go right, we can go left. We could serve him going right, we could serve him going left. He can show his love through us to the world, whether we make this decision or that decision. Lutherans often call this the doctrine of vocation. It doesn't really matter what you do. It doesn't really matter where you are in life. It doesn't really matter what your roles are. God serves others through you. Christian husband, Christian wife, Christian father, Christian mother. Go on and on. Christian employer, Christian employee, whatever you might be. All the many things, you're a Christian. And you get to serve God in whatever it is that you are doing. Neither, says the commander of the Lord. I have come to fight a bigger battle a more important battle. I'm fighting against the forces of sin, death, and hell. In our text for today, we see Jesus resolutely focused, 100% committed, on the battle that he came to fight. He is going to fight that battle. Listen to the first verse of our text again. As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. Now this just so happens to be a turning point in the Gospel of Luke. I have a two commentary set on Luke's Gospel. The first volume ends, Luke chapter 9, verse 50. The second volume begins here. Luke chapter 9, verse 51. File that away. Luke chapter 9, verse 51. It's the beginning of a section that scholars sometimes refer to as the travel narrative in Luke's gospel. It's about the next 10 chapters or so. We're going to spend a lot of time in these next 10 chapters over the next few months. And so it's good to kind of keep this in mind. Luke 9, 51. Turning point. As we talked about in the children's devotion, that first phrase, as the time filled up almost to the brim for his ascension, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. Literally, it says Jesus set his face toward or against Jerusalem. 
Now, if you were here last week and you heard Pastor Stibbs preach on that portion of God's word that I always say at the end of the service, right? The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord look on you with favor and give you peace. Well, for the Lord to set his face against a person, place, region, that's bad. That means God is about to pour out his anger, his wrath on that person, that place, that region. But for God's face to shine on you, that's good. That's blessing. This is strange. Jesus sets his face toward Jerusalem, not to pour out wrath on it, but to go there and have the wrath of God poured out on him. And Jesus is 100% committed to that mission. Straight to Jerusalem he goes. This passage marks that turning point where Jesus sets his face toward the goal, the goal of saving sinners like you and me from sin, death, and hell. And as he goes, we're told he goes into Samaria. That was strange because Jews and Samaritans, of course, they did not get along in Jesus' day. Normally, a Jew up in the region of Galilee would go around Samaria on their way down to Jerusalem, but Jesus goes through it, and he does something that makes sense. He sent messengers on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. If you invite me to your house, I'm going to do something very important before I come. I'm going to clarify, have I been invited or has my whole family been invited? Because if that van shows up and all nine of us come pouring out, and you weren't in expecting the, the rest of the crew, watch out. <laughs> you're, in for a, you're in for an exciting evening. It's good to make sure people are ready for the large group to come. That's what Jesus is doing. He sends into the village, hey, my whole group is coming, get ready for us. But they don't welcome him. And the reason they don't welcome him is very interesting. The people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. You see, this is one of the things that separated the Jews and the Samaritans. The Samaritans rejected the fact that Jerusalem was the place for the temple. They rejected the idea that the Lord would be worshipped in Jerusalem. And so the fact that Jesus is going there is offensive to them. They don't want anything to do with Jesus and his followers. And this makes James and John, the sons of thunder, a little mad. If you're tracking this through, if you page back in Luke's gospel, just a few pages, you see the account of the transfiguration. Jesus is there on a mountain with Peter, James, and John. And you remember who's with Jesus as he reveals a glimpse of his glory? It's Moses and Elijah. James and John have Elijah on their mind. They just saw him. And they're thinking of that time when God rained down fire from heaven to consume the altar when Elijah was doing battle with the prophets of Baal. You remember what happened after that? All 450 prophets of Baal were executed. So James and John are thinking, Lord, you want us to call down fire from heaven and have these wicked people destroyed? Jesus rebuked them. And it's a good thing he did. Because in Luke's second volume, 
the book of Acts, we hear that after Jesus ascended into heaven, the gospel was preached in Samaria. And then a few chapters later in Acts chapter 9, verse 31, we hear that there was peace among the Christian churches in Judea and Galilee and Samaria. It's good that Jesus was gracious. It's good that Jesus relented even after these wicked people rejected him because the gospel would be preached there again and again and again. And Jesus knew that there was work to be done yet there amongst those people in Samaria. Jesus continues on. On to Jerusalem he marches and there's these three dialogues between Jesus and would-be followers. Let's just walk through those briefly. As they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. What's Jesus want this would-be follower to know? You're welcome to follow me, but just so you know, I have nothing to offer you in the sense of earthly offerings. There is no palace in store for you. There is no earthly glory in store for you. I don't have a house. I don't have a car. I don't have a boat. I don't have anything. If you follow me, you won't have anything either. Just so you know. Then Jesus turns to another man. He says, follow me. But he replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. In Luke chapter 8, right before this chapter, Jesus' mother, Mary, and his stepbrothers, the children of Mary and Joseph, come. It's highly likely that Joseph has passed away at this point. And Jesus, as the oldest, would now be culturally the head of the house, in charge of his mother and his brothers. And so it's reasonable that they'd come looking for him. And people come say, your, your mother and your brothers are here looking for you. And Jesus says, well, who are my mother and brothers? It's not blood relation, it's kingdom of God relation. Not many of you are related in this room, unless you're sitting next to a spouse or family member. But not many of you are related. If you were to look around this room, you'd see a lot of people that you're not related to by blood, but you are related to them. Brothers and sisters in Christ. I often refer to you as brother, sister. That's intentional. We are related in Christ. Brothers and sisters in Christ. Jesus is here saying that spiritual relationship is so important, it's even more important than relationships by blood. For the follower of Jesus, is that easy or hard? <clears throat> Third one. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord. But first, let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. Hearkening back to the Old Testament lesson, Elisha plowing with his yoke of oxen, hard enough to keep the thing straight if you're looking forward. If you're like a toddler looking backward while you're walking, you're running into things, the line's crooked, 
right? Even when you're looking forward, it can be hard to plow a straight line. The one constantly looking back at the things of the world is not fit for service in the kingdom of God. There is this saying amongst Lutheran theologians, justification is free. And thank God for that. Justification is free. The not guilty verdict that Jesus won for sinners like you and me, free as free could be, but sanctification? Sanctification will cost you everything. Everything that you have. Jesus says, put it aside, put it away. Family, friends, goals, things, stuff, none of it. None of it is as, is, is as important as Jesus. Not a thing. And so here we have this theme before us today. God's powerful word creates committed followers. But for white bread American suburbanites, this is hard. I grew up in a community much like this one at a church that wasn't all that different from this one. I know what it's like to be an American suburbanite. I know what it's like to like the things that I have, to cling to them for comfort. I I get it. It's hard for us. It blows my mind how committed we are to things that don't have a guaranteed outcome. We are willing to pour blood, sweat, tears, effort, money, time into sports as youth. And we have no guarantee that the knees and the arms and the shoulders are going to hold up to make anything out of it. And we are willing to pour so much time and energy into school and into career paths at the collegiate level or the technical college. And we have no idea if we're ever going to get a job in that career path or not. We are willing to pour so much time and energy into our careers. And we have no idea what will come out of it. We have no idea if our job will be there tomorrow. We have no idea if the promotion that we think we're working toward will ever happen. We pour so much of what we have into so many things that have an uncertain outcome. Now, now listen. I am not saying that the things I just described are bad. It is not bad to apply yourself. It is not bad to apply the gifts that God has given to you to the best of your ability. But understand this, brothers and sisters. You are willing to pour a lot of blood, sweat, tear, time, money, everything you got into a lot of things that have an uncertain outcome. For what reason would you be unwilling to pour everything you got into the one thing that has a certain outcome? That is a logical disconnect that can only be explained by your sin and mine. The commitment that Jesus describes is hard. It costs you everything. You don't get the glory, you get the cross. You get suffering. 
You get the shunning of earthly stuff and earthly promises. But the result of that commitment is secure, guaranteed, 100%. Not because of your commitment. Not because of mine. But because of Luke chapter 9, verse 51. Because of the resolute commitment of the Son of God who set his face against Jerusalem. Not to go there and destroy it, but to go there and be destroyed. To go there and endure the hell that our lack of focus deserves, that our poor Christian commitment deserves. That's why Jesus went there. That's why he was so committed. That's why he went to Jerusalem to rescue you, to rescue me. And now he turns to you and to me and he says, follow me. I have nothing earthly speaking to offer to you. Nothing at all. I have different kind of relationships to offer you, spiritual ones. And those I surely offer you. He says, I have the kingdom of God to offer you, nothing else. Come Follow me. I suppose a preacher could rightly be understood if he said, look at how much Jesus has done for you. Can you not be a little more committed for him? That could be misunderstood too. But we have a better option. We have a much better option than using the gospel to guilt you into service. It's the guaranteed outcome. Commitment to Jesus is not like the commitment to the other things that we have in this life. Your hourglass is not emptying, it is filling up. You are not in danger of missing out on something here because your days are running out. No, your days are filling up. Whether you're old or young, you are getting closer and closer and closer to ascending into heaven, to joining your Savior in paradise. Did you hear the words of the prayer of the day? Let's, let's close with those words again. Oh God, you have prepared joys beyond understanding for those who love you. You are preparing things for us that we cannot even begin to understand. It's so wonderful. Pour into our hearts such love for you that loving you above all things, we may obtain your promises which exceed all that we can desire. The things God has promised to his committed followers exceeds everything that your sinful heart could crave in this life. That's how great it is. May God be with us. May he give us the strength to be his committed followers. Through his word, he promises to do so. Amen.